Well, you remember where the book of Acts is? We're back. A few more chapters to finish. So you can get your Bibles out and open to Acts chapter 24, page 1286 in that black hardback Bible in the pew in front of you. If you didn't bring a copy of God's Word, you can grab that. Flip open to Acts 24 so you can follow along with us. And uh, this will be our final journey in Acts. We'll go through these final chapters now as we've paused for some time and uh, went through the book of Jonah and then uh, spent some time talking about Advent and the coming of Christ. And now we're back to Acts 24 in the providence of God. This particular chapter, this particular conversation today at this particular time in our uh, lives and especially, I think, in our calendar year and to you this morning who are not here by any coincidence or accident or just random events, but by a sovereign God's goodwill and purpose to put us all here this day together. So what we want to do is pray and ask Him to come, to give us ears to hear, and to speak to us as only He can. So let's do that. Let's pray. Father, we humble ourselves before Your Word. Mighty God, thank You for speaking to us for giving us your word, that we might know you, that we might be able to hear from you and receive instruction to know who we are and how you have ordained for us to live and all of the good and wonderful things that you have accomplished. And so we receive this morning your word as the gift that it's intended to be. Lord, These are not man's words. These are your words. And they are just as relevant in this moment as they were the moment they were first spoken. And so we pray in Jesus' name and through the power of your spirit that you'll come and give us ears to hear. Help us to have hearts willing to receive. Till the soil of our hearts that we might receive this good word. And that it might bear fruit. That you might be glorified. We thank you. In Jesus name. Amen. So every year when it comes to a new year. I'm always uh, talking to you about. um, I'm not really a person who's big on New Year's resolutions. But I am a person who is very diligent every year at the coming of a new year to examine my own life and to take inventory of my own life and to look at what God has accomplished in my life over the last year. How am I different today than I was one year ago? And, which is a reason why if you, if you don't journal, then I don't know exactly why you don't. If you're in a D group, then you can go back through your D group Material, And you can see the things and be reminded of all the things that God's done in your life this year. And then as we look to a new year, what exactly is it that we are looking to? And so you didn't ask me, but if you would have asked me, well, Pastor, what are you praying for, uh, for, for us, for us as a church, for us as a people? Well, I'm praying that God won't do or won't give us the things that we want, but he will do and give us the things that we need. And see, I already know, according to scripture, that he's willing to do that. So what's at issue is, are we willing to receive them? Are we willing to be open to them? And so that's why we always pray that God would give us ears to hear. Because though we have these two things attached to the side of our head, they may not be able to spiritually hear the things that we want to hear. And so let's start this new year off by listening 
and letting God speak to us and give us clarity about the things he wants us to hear. Acts 24, we'll go through the whole chapter more or less, but I want us to begin reading in verse 24 to set the context of where we are. Verse 24, Acts 24, 24. Here's what the Bible says. And after some days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the truth or concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid or alarmed and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. So in those two passages there, you see where the title of the sermon, when for now is forever, comes from. What we're going to look at is the danger of procrastination. The danger of procrastination. And what a great thing it is to have this conversation on the beginning of a new year. And in particular, to realize that spiritual procrastination Putting things off until tomorrow that God would have us do today is a very, very dangerous thing. The Latin word procrastination, pro means for, crast means tomorrow. So what procrastination means is for tomorrow. It just means for tomorrow. It sounds like being positive, like proactive, but it's actually being proactive in prolonging. So, as we think about this together, we need to realize that it's very likely, it's very likely that this conversation, this issue of procrastination, in particular spiritual procrastination, has accounted for more people going to hell than any other sin. Because we have a God so willing to speak and so willing to save. And yet so oftentimes what we hear in our head and what we convince ourselves of, things like, well, I I know that I need to be saved. I know that I need to make changes. I know that I need to, to, to grow in this area. I know that I need to commit to this thing. I need to do these things, but I... It's just not now. I'm going to do it, but I'm not going to do it now. I've got to wait because of this or that. I've got to wait until a more opportune time. And it's those conversations that lead us to doom. Now, I want to to remind you where we are in the story because we can't just jump into the 24th chapter of something. So Paul is making his way to Jerusalem. Now, remember, God's already encouraged him that he's going to go to Jerusalem. And God's already told him that he's not going to die before he gets to Jerusalem to share. But along the way to Jerusalem, if you remember what we've talked about in the previous several chapters, all along the way, everyone in Paul's life has tried to dissuade him from going to Jerusalem. Even the people closest to him have said, you shouldn't go to Jerusalem because if you do, you're going to be beaten and arrested. They're going to kill kill you, don't do this. They even tied him up, if you remember, and to show him what would happen to him. But Paul, knowing that God had called him to do this, perseveres on his way to Jerusalem. So this sort of began back in Acts 21 where uh, he was arrested in the temple. Then when you get to 22 and 23, he's placed in the protective custody of the Roman commander Lysias. So Lysias is sort of uh, protecting him because the Jews, if you remember the, the very last conversation we had in Acts, there's a, there's a contingency of Jews right now at this moment that are on a hunger strike that have vowed not to eat or drink a thing until they kill Paul. So to say that he's a wanted man would be a great understatement. He is a desperately wanted man and people desperately want him dead but he's under the care of this Roman commander and uh, who is protecting him as you will and so they brought him to Caesarea for trial before the Roman governor of this region who is Felix and so that's 
the context of this whole chapter. Paul has come to Caesarea. He's a prisoner. Felix is the governor who's going to give him his trial. We pick up the story. So if you have your listening guide, we're going to look at some lessons that we can learn learn from this interaction with Felix. The first thing we want to see is that familiarity without faith. Familiarity without faith. You see, he stands before Felix. Felix listens to what Paul has to say. And I want you to notice, look in verse 22. When Felix heard these things, having a more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. Verse 23. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for him or visit him. So what Felix does is he listens to Paul give reason for his faith. In other words, in the beginning part of the chapter, what you have is the false accusations against Paul, which if you are familiar with this whole section of Acts, is an ongoing process. Everywhere Paul goes, like Jesus, he's falsely accused. He gives uh, right defense of himself, which is always not defending himself, but simply proclaiming the gospel. And then as... God, as only a sovereign God can, orchestrates all of these events around them. Well, so Felix listens to what Paul says, and rather than making a decision, he adjourns the proceedings, or he put them off. He put off making the decision. You see, he didn't want to make a decision to set Paul free, because if he, do, if he did that, he knew that the Jews would go ballistic, And that would threaten his job. His job is to keep peace and order. And so he's got all these people out here, this angry mob of people. So if he sends Paul out there, if he releases him, they're going to go crazy. So he can't do that. But he can't execute Paul because he's a Roman official and he already has found out that Paul is a Roman citizen. And so he's caught between a rock and a hard place. And he's trying to please everyone at one time. And so therefore he's frozen and unable to make a decision. So he keeps Paul in custody. But you can tell by the way that the Bible tells us how. He keeps him in custody, but he gives liberty. He allows Paul's companions to come and meet his needs and bring him food and the things that he needs and so on and so forth. So he's not in stocks and down in the dungeon, but he is... uh, no less a prisoner, and held captive. Now, why did Felix do this? That's the question. Why did this all happen? Notice in verse 22 what the Bible says. When Felix heard these things, what things? The things that Paul said about God in the previous verses. Here's what happens. Having a more accurate knowledge of the way. Having a more accurate knowledge of the way. The way, that's the term that Luke uses in the book of Acts to describe Christians, Jesus followers. Comes from, no doubt, John chapter 14, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. The way. So that's the term that Luke uses to describe Jesus followers. So Felix had a more accurate knowledge of Jesus. He was familiar with the facts about Jesus, but He didn't know Jesus. He just knew about Jesus. And that's what we need to understand. You need to understand this morning that knowing is not trusting. You see, trusting Jesus is not information. It may take information to get a person to trusting Jesus. We'll get to that in a minute. But information in and of itself is not trusting. There's a huge difference. Familiarity is not faith. You see, a lot of people struggle with this, especially 
in the Bible Belt. You grow up in a Christian home, and all you know is Christian things. Your parents went to church, so you went to church. That's, you know, you pray before meals. Your parents believe the Bible. They quoted Scripture to you, so on and so forth. And so you begin to believe that you're a Christian because you've grown up in this Christian environment. And maybe you've even went through these Christian sort of sequence of events. Maybe like Willard's testimony this morning. Maybe you've, you grew up, and so you just, well, what people do is they make a profession. And so you went to VBS, and you made a profession. You went to youth camp, and you made a profession. Then you got baptized, because that's what people do after they do that, and then so on and so forth. But here's the thing. It's just familiarity. You don't have an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. And there's, it, it may seem obvious, but it's not. There's a lot of deceived people who believe that they're Christians based on familiarity. You see, God seems familiar to them, seems normal to them, seems like part of normal everyday life. That's not salvation. Listen, a person, no matter how familiar they are with the gospel, who does not place their faith, put their trust in Jesus, will not go to heaven. Knowing the facts without faith will never save you. It will never save you. So Felix has a more accurate knowledge of the way, which leads to number two, which is that hearing without heeding, hearing without heeding, each of these deceptions will just creep up on us in a very subtle, sneaky way if we're not careful. Now I want you to look at verse 24. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla. Now I just want to throw this out there. If any of you are looking for a baby name, this one's available. We don't have any Drusillas in the uh, nursery that I know of. I don't know why this is, but every time I read the name Drusilla, I think about the... Uh, mean lady in the 101 Dalmatians. Every single time. That wasn't her. What was her name? See, you watching too many Disney movies. But I always think it's Drusilla. But anyway, you know, since, you know, the last time we were together, we had a conversation about, thank you, sir. How kind of you. Uh, let's give Noah a hand. Praise the Lord for Noah. There you go. Right now, he's like, thanks, Dad. You're killing me. Amen. So, I, you know, last time we were together, I was recommending some names, so I thought I'd throw Drusilla out there for you. It's available, okay? It's just the name. So, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, now this is interesting, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. You see this? So Felix and his wife, Drusilla. Now think about who these two people are. The power couple in Caesarea. Drusilla is a, is a descendant of Herod. So she is royalty in and of herself. Felix is the most powerful man in the region. These two together. Felix, a scoundrel of a person. He was born a slave. He used all sorts of trickery and cunning. We have lots of information about Felix from uh, Roman historians. And uh, he was a, a very sneaky and underhanded person who used all sorts of crafty ways to deceive his way to the top. But nonetheless, uh, you know, stabbing everyone in the back and doing whatever was necessary to climb his way up the ladder, did so. Um, I was reading some uh, Jewish historians who described Felix as a master of cruelty and lust. He was, uh, he, he was a, a horrible person. Now, just a, a way to, to give you a glimpse into the kind of character that Felix had. So his wife, Drusilla, she, we, because she's a descendant of Herod, we know a granddaughter of, of the Herod that was killing babies that we were talking about. Uh, at Christmas time, so 
she got married the first time at 15. We know all sorts of things about her life at 15 years of age. But she was known to be very, very beautiful. And so Felix meets her and uh, through a, he actually hired a magician and somehow cast a spell. I don't know all the details of what happened, but he somehow uh, got rid of her husband and brought her in to be his own wife. Now, she's very, very young, even at this time. As all of this is going on, she can be no more than 20 because we know a lot about her life, like I've already said. So she's maybe 19, maybe 20 years old at this time, uh, very beautiful, grown up with very wicked people around her, but always in a position of power and affluence and is married to somebody who is a a dirtbag, really, without uh, any other better way to say it. So Felix and Drusilla are, I'm just trying to get you to understand, they're lost. You got that? They're lost. And they're not Jesus followers. And Paul could have looked at these two because Paul is familiar with these two. He knows them. Think of all the time he's he's spent in Caesarea. He knows these two and their history. And so knowing all of this, it would have been so easy for Paul to say, Well, this is pointless. I mean, these two are just, you know, so far away from God. What difference would it make? But I want you to pay attention that Paul doesn't do that. Paul doesn't see anybody as too far from God. And so Paul shares with them just like he would anybody. And that's one thing that we need to remember. That sometimes we're reluctant to share the truth with people that we know a lot about. And so we're very familiar with how broken and far from God they may be. And so we may convince ourselves that they're too far. And so we may be more willing to share with someone we don't know anything about. And listen, we should be equally, equally as urgent to share the truth with every person that we meet. We are not the judge of anyone. And Paul continually reminds us of this. So Paul sees them the way God sees them. And so he shares with them. So after some days they come and the Bible says, he sent for Paul and heard him. They sat down. They listened to Paul reason and teach concerning faith in Christ. Now we know the Bible says in Romans chapter 10 that Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That if we don't share the gospel with people, people won't get saved. There's no salvation apart from the word of God. And so if we're reluctant to share, that doesn't mean that a person, that we're responsible for a person to get saved because we know that would be ridiculous. That would make us God and we're not God. But if we choose To be reluctant to share the gospel, we're choosing to alienate ourselves from the primary purpose that God has for our life. So in this coming year, one of your priorities, if not your top priority, should be to be a person who more effectively shares the gospel of Jesus Christ with people around you. Because that's the primary reason why you're here as his son or daughter is to be an ambassador of the good news. And if you don't do that, you are opting out of your primary responsibility as a Jesus follower. Apart from hearing, there will be no salvation. You know, it's wonderful to do nice things for people. It's wonderful to be be a good example for people. It's great that... Uh, people would see you as being nice and moral and ethical. But if you never tell them about Jesus, what difference does it make? You know, the world, there are plenty of people in the world, plenty of people in the world who don't know Jesus and who are nice. And they're ethical people. And maybe they were just brought up in such a way as to where they respect other people and they, and they live by the, according to the laws of the land and they try to do good things for other people and they don't know Jesus. You've got to make sure that you don't look like that to people. You've got to make sure that the distinguishing mark 
of your life is that you know Jesus. It's very important because you can't heed if you can't hear. And they can't hear from you. You can't participate in people's hearing if you're not speaking. If you're not speaking. You see, you can be a nice person. But what good would that do? The Bible says, you know, what good would it do if you gained the whole world if you lost your own soul? What good would it be? What good would it be? Jesus is the only one that can change us from the inside out. So if that's true, which I'm sure that almost everyone in this room would affirm that. If that's true, which it is, then why would we hide that? A lamp was not meant to be under a basket, but it's meant to be set up. And to be a city on a hill that shines brightly that people can see from every direction, right? Yes. we got to tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ. Not the good news of anything else. If If we tell them the good news of anything else, it should be to lead to the good news of Jesus. But we can't just tell them the good news of other things and stop there. We have to understand. Hearing the good news doesn't save you. Believing the good news saves you. Heeding to the good news saves you. I want you to think about as you read through the Gospels and Jesus moves through his earthly ministry and how time and time again we find Jesus surrounded by crowds of people. And I want you to think about how whenever Jesus is surrounded by a crowd of people, The entire crowd hears what he says. But only a small minority follow him. Do not confuse hearing with heeding. Just because you were there in proximity. Just because you heard something. You see, coming to church doesn't make you a Christian. Hearing a sermon won't make you a Christian. Hearing a sermon can put you in a position where you can become a Christian, but it requires more than simply hearing. It's believing. In fact, when you read the Gospels, what you find is most people that heard Jesus got angry, which again is probably the reason why We're most reluctant to share the gospel with people is because we feel as if they're going to reject it, which why would we be surprised about that? It's always been that way. And listen, whether they receive it or reject it is not our business. That's God's business. Our business is to be an ambassador of the good word that he's given us. You see, but if you hear the word and you heed to the word, then God's word starts to transform you. Then the power of the word starts to take effect in your life. But if you hear it and don't heed it, don't pay attention to it, don't respond to it, then you deceive yourself into believing that you're, listen, growing spiritually. This is what what I'm concerned this morning about you and the possibility that you have maybe been involved and faithful in church, maybe more faithful in in the previous year than you've been in other years. And so because you have been faithful in hearing, you have equated that with spiritual growth. But you see, intake doesn't determine spiritual growth. Output does. Spiritual fruit indicates spiritual growth. You can be a professional sermon listener. You can be an expert Bible reader. But if it's just in, 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 you're not growing spiritually. You cannot judge. Does the Bible say you judge a tree by the height of the tree? By the width of the tree, by the breadth of the tree, by the bark of the tree, by the leaves of the tree, by anything else about the tree, 
No, by the fruit of the tree. It's the fruit. It's very easy to get deceived into believing that hearing is growing. Taking in information is not growing. Bearing fruit is growing. The third deception, number three, conviction without conversion. Conviction without conversion. Now look at verse 25. Now as he reasoned about righteousness. This is Paul. This is what Paul says to Felix. He reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Now, don't miss, there's some shocking things going on in this one passage right here. And the first thing that should jump off the page at you is that the Bible says that the man in power, the person with all the authority, all the, all the power, the one who's in control and in charge, is afraid. And the prisoner who's locked up and at the mercy of this powerful one is the one who's speaking boldly and how the tables have turned. He's afraid. That, that Greek word, it means to be filled with fear. To be filled with fear. So he's afraid and he sends him away. I want to just spend a couple minutes and talk to you about conviction and the gospel. And make sure that we have clarity about things that we need to be clear. First of all, God's way of salvation is not clearly presented. Unless people are told something to believe rather than something to do. You see, a lot of times you'll hear a gospel presentation or somebody sharing the faith with somebody in some evangelistic setting or maybe you're just, you know, somebody sharing the, trying to lead somebody to Christ and it's all about something that they're supposed to do. That's not the gospel. I want you to get this now and understand this text is going to make this painfully clear and I know a lot of people don't feel like this is a confusion for them, but it is. And if you listen to the things you say and listen to the people around you and what they say, you'll begin to tune in to the fact that there's a lot of deception about this issue. What is it that made Felix afraid? What was it that led to conviction in Felix's heart? How could this powerful, why in the world would Felix be afraid of Paul? And yet he is. Was it because there was something he needed to do? Is that what Paul told him? Listen, the Bible tells us what Paul said. Felix heard about God's righteousness. You see, when the Bible says that he told him about righteousness, that's not about, Paul wasn't telling him about his righteousness. If you know anything about the Bible, and especially anything about Paul, who says that our righteousness is but filthy rags, he's not talking about his righteousness because he knows he doesn't have any. He's talking about God's righteousness. That's what he's talking about. Felix hears about God's righteousness. He heard about how his life had demonstrated a lack of self-control. You see, everyone knew Felix's story, Andrew Silla's story. And the fact that they, they didn't have self-control. They didn't demonstrate self-control. They knew because God's written his law on the heart of every man, woman, and child. They knew that the things that they had done were wrong. You, do you think for one second that Felix thought that maybe he didn't, even if he didn't believe in God at all, he would still know that he probably didn't do things the right way. And she knew that she didn't do things the right way. And that they really, why did they do those things? Well, because their life lacks self-control. And then Paul told them about the coming judgment. The fact that God's going to come again. He's going to judge 
every single person, not according to their works, but according to his perfect righteous law. That's what he heard. Now, upon hearing this, Felix could have said, well, please tell me what I can do about this predicament that I'm in. Please help me find a way out of this or through this. He could have said, tell me how to trust Jesus and to receive forgiveness of my sin. He could have said that, but he didn't. What he said was when his heart was convicted and afraid and when he began to feel a feeling that made him uncomfortable and he wasn't sure, you know, exactly how he he felt about all that. In that moment, what he did was he said, go away for now. And when it's convenient, I'll call for you. In the midst of his conviction and fear, he summoned up enough pride in his heart. He, he, He relied on that old master in his heart to stiffen his lip and steady his trembling hands, pull himself together and send Paul away. Now, was he convicted? Absolutely. That's why he was afraid. There's no other reason why. The Bible tells us that he was afraid and tells us why he was afraid. So certainly there was remorse and guilt. Otherwise, if he didn't think he did anything wrong, would he have been afraid? Well, no. Here's what the Bible says in Romans 10. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. You see, that's the shock of the righteousness of God. Is it what pride does? Is it seeks to establish our own righteousness? You know what? I'll fix this myself later. I'll handle this. Let me process this. Let me think through this. Let me figure all these things out. Let me. Meanwhile, your heart is beating out of your chest for some unexplainable reason. So you ask yourself this question. I mean, just let's just, just think logically for one second. We're all sitting here in this room. I mean, for the most part, you're relatively comfortable. Nobody's panicking. And yet, at the end of this sermon, there'll be a time of invitation. And you'll be in the same room, in the same place you are right now, And suddenly you're going to feel gravely uncomfortable. Your heart rate's going to be elevated. Some of you are going to begin to sweat in your palms. You're going to be stressed out and nervous. Why? What's changed? What's changed? You see, you can sit where you are right now and you can deflect off the things that you hear. And you can put them on other people, and you can put them at another time. But when it comes to the moment of decision, suddenly, as conviction sets in, and there's no other explanation for the reason that you feel the way that you feel other than God is speaking to you. He's communicating to you. He's drawing you unto himself. I mean, why else is this happening? So here we see a man who has real conviction, but no change. It's conviction without conversion. You know, conversion is not doing something. It's believing in somebody. My goodness, we live in a culture where I think at an alarmingly increasing rate, False teachers are presenting the gospel in a works-based way. It's not doing something. It's receiving someone. 
It's trusting in someone. The doing follows the relationship. It doesn't precede it. You see, feeling bad, listen, does Felix feel bad? Well, sure he does. Does Drusilla feel bad? Well, sure she does. But that's not the same thing as repenting. Feeling guilty is not the same thing as repentance. Those are two different things. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 7, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation or conviction from God has the opportunity to lead to repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. You see, the difference is not in the way it in, in the, the way it begins and in what it feels like, it's in what happens after. Is there going to be change? Or are we just going to go back to the same thing? Look, you could feel guilty as all get out. And if nothing changes, it's just guilt. It's just remorse. Faith is a reliance upon God's promise to us as sinners rather than the sinner's reliance upon their promise to God. You understand that? Faith is not based on your earnestness or sincerity in promising to God. That's not salvation. Salvation comes when your faith is in God's promise to you. Because listen, if if your salvation is based on your commitment to God, you're doomed. We're all doomed. It's based on God's commitment to us. You see, the biblical way of salvation is a belief or a trust in what God has already done, not in something that we might or must do or even have done. You've got to, you've got to get things. You, you see, you can have the right pieces, but what Satan wants to do is get them in the wrong order. And then you end up deceived. And so then what happens is, because you were convicted, you falsely believe that you're converted. Your conversion is not based on uh, how emotional you were in that moment. It's not based on how, uh, uh, you know, outward your response is. It's not, no, it's not. When you place your faith in a good, sovereign, trustworthy God who always keeps his promises and who has promised to complete the good work he's begun in you. So when you place your faith in that God who makes those promises, then fruit begins to bear from your life. Not because of you, because of God. You understand that? It's because of God. But if you're working to clean up your life, it's never going to happen. Which brings up number four. Deception number four is delay without decision. Delay without decision. So not only can there be conviction and no conversion, but you've got to delay without a decision. Look at verse 26. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given to him by Paul that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. So here's what that's telling us. This went on for two more years. For two years, Paul stayed a prisoner under Felix. And for two years, Felix periodically and continuously would bring Paul in and would sit and would listen to Paul expound about his faith. What do you think that they talked about? Do you, do you 
by any stretch of an imagination believe there's any possibility that they would sit down and the Apostle Paul was talking about current events, sports scores. No. Paul was talking about Jesus and the resurrection. That's what Paul was talking about. And Festus kept meeting with him and kept listening to him and kept hearing and hearing and hearing for two years. He showed interest. Now, it, the Bible tells us that he, that he had a divided heart. He had a duplicative motive. That he was, he was hoping that some of Paul's compadres would uh, try to buy Paul's freedom and therefore, you know, pad his pockets with some money. Which again is just an indication of no different than what we see today. How many churches are filled with people who are professing faith in Jesus and in reality their relationship or their devotion to God is 100% based on what they believe God will do for them. That's all it is right there. That's all it is. Maybe you're here this morning and you subconsciously have convinced yourself or been convinced that by going through spiritual motions that will cause God to either keep harm from you or to help you or rescue you if harm comes to you. Which is a very perverted way of just saying that you, you have some sort of financial relationship, some obligatory relationship with God whereby you do certain things and God is now obligated to do something for you. God's never obligated to do anything for us. But what he, what he will always do is keep his word. And what his word says is that he delights to do good things for his sons and daughters. And that he doesn't give us the things that we ask for, but he gives us the things that we need, that we need. He loves to, to bless his children. So here's Felix showing interest in the things of, that Paul's speaking of, but no, no movement, no decision, no change. And the more he delays, the more he toys around with God's messenger and God's word, the more he plays this religious uh, board game of death, the more spiritual danger he places himself in. Think about what Jesus said in Mark chapter 4. These will come up on the screen. Then Jesus said to them, take heed of what you hear. Why? Why, why do you heed the things that you hear? With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. And to you who hear, more will be given. For whoever has, to him more will be given. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Take heed to what you hear. Because the way you treat the things you hear is going to have lasting consequences, eternal consequences in your life. So what happened to Felix? What's Felix's testimony what's his story well history tells us that he was after two years he was called back to Rome nearly executed that the people were so sick and tired of his evil wicked rotten ways that they were starting to revolt against him and so he's removed from power and you know what happens he disappears from the pages of history he goes from the pinnacle to invisible Which makes me wonder. Here God clearly moved in his life. Put him in a position. It, it, didn't, it wasn't an accident that he ended up with Paul as his prisoner. Sitting here having these conversations. Over time hearing all this information. That his heart was filled with fear. That he was convicted. All that didn't happen by accident. It was God drawing Felix unto himself. It was God... Saying to Felix, Felix, follow me. Now think about the other people. Think about the people that Jesus went to and 
He said, follow me. The 12 men that walked with Jesus, one the betrayer. I wonder if Felix could have been number 13. I wonder if Felix would have said yes when his heart was convicted, when he heard the gospel, when he realized the truth about himself and the truth about God and the truth about the future, if he would have rightly responded to all of that, I wonder if maybe there'd be a a book in the Bible named after him like there is other faithful men. But instead, he just disappears. He's gone. It's over. And what about his wife, Drusilla? Well, we know exactly what happened to her. We know that she went to Pompeii with her son. They had two children, a son and a daughter. Her and her son went to Pompeii. It was 79 A.D. They're visiting. And suddenly and tragically, her and multitudes of people perished instantly when Mount Vesuvius erupted with no warning and they were consumed, gone, disappeared. Felix and Drusilla. Their pages, uh, their names are, they just vanish. We need to understand some things about putting off the things that God's calling us to do. The God who promises to save you today does not promise you another opportunity. There may be, and there may not be. But let's be very clear. According to the Scripture, there is opportunity today. But there's no guarantee of another one. There's no guarantee that there will be another opportunity. Secondly, the God who promises to save you today does not promise you another day. It's not only another opportunity, but it's another day. You see, some of you mistakenly equate this conversation with the fact that so long as you don't die, you'll have another opportunity. Where did you get that idea? Where did you get that idea? You made that up. That's not what the Bible says. You remember when uh, Simon the sorcerer comes on the scene and tries to buy the power of the Holy Spirit from the apostles? Remember that? And do you remember what the apostles said to Simon the sorcerer who was professing to be a believer and then tried? He's running around with them doing all the things they're doing, look just like Judas looked, just look like everyone else. And then he tries to buy the power of the Holy Spirit, indicating two things, the corruptness of his heart, and secondly, the void in his heart, because if he was truly a follower, he would have already had that. But the point is, the apostle's response to him was, pray that if perhaps God would grant you salvation or grant you repentance. Listen. Don't equate opportunity with a day. You may have a lot of days and no more opportunities. This may be your last opportunity. You may live 50 years after today and this may be your last opportunity. I don't know that, but there's no guarantee. There's no guarantee. And you say, well, how can you say that? Based on the authority of Scripture. You see, here's what I know. I know that you don't determine whether or not there's an opportunity. You don't. The Bible says you don't. God does. 
And so if God does, then who are you or I to say what he will or won't do? He is the one who creates opportunity. And so this morning is the only opportunity that I know that you have. Whether that's an opportunity to receive him as Lord and Savior, to walk in relationship with him, to follow him, whether it's the invitation to do the things. See, you, some of you are sitting in here today and God has been speaking to you about certain things in your life and you just keep putting them off and putting them off and putting them off. And here's the thing, you are deceiving yourself if you believe that if you just don't die between now and tomorrow, tomorrow will be a new opportunity. Who says that? You don't have any authority to say that, nor do I. And furthermore, how ridiculous is that if there's no guarantee you will have another day? Which certainly ends the opportunity. You see how easily we deceive ourselves? We take things, even spiritual things, and we twist them in a way that makes sense to us. Listen, I don't want to scare you this morning. That's not my purpose. I want to be honest with you. I want us to start this new year on the right foot. Let's just be honest. You have never been closer to eternity than you are right now. You see, you're, you, the, the room is filled with people just like me. Look, how many of us could say there are so many times in our past that we should have been dead, could have been dead? I mean, how many times? You don't have time enough for me to tell you all the times that I could have and should have been dead. But all of those times, no matter how close to death I might have come in my past, I was never as close then as I am now. To eternity. Think about it. Realize the, the gravity and the weight of the reality of this moment. And how easy it is for us to push aside and to, to deceive ourselves into just procrastinating into the future. Whenever the Bible talks about salvation, whenever the Bible talks about Responding to God, hearing God, heeding God. Whenever the Bible talks about anything to do with responding and receiving God, it always speaks of it in terms of today. Every single time. It's always now, today. Think God maybe loves us so much that he tells us the truth? Today, 2 Corinthians 6. We then as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Don't receive the grace of God this morning in vain. For he says, quoting Isaiah 49, in an acceptable time I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, Paul says, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow. Now. Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Why is the Bible telling us this? Because if God was always available to be near, this verse wouldn't be true. The only way this verse can be true is if there's no guarantee that he's near other than now. You see? While he's near, verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. and He will have mercy on him and our God for he will abundantly pardon don't you see you see the grace of God now 
You see, some of you in your mind, you're thinking to yourself, you're starting to pull away and you're starting to think, oh, I, I don't, you know, I don't like that. I, I feel pressured. I feel, listen, why are you turning the most positive, wonderful gift in the history of the universe into something negative? You're so fixated on the fact that it may or may not be available at some point in the future, you're missing the point that it's available now. Listen, if God's calling you to do something, what on earth else matters? What matters? Stop saying, hey, next year I'm going to do this. Next week I'm going to do this. Next month I'm going to do this. I'm going to make this change. And I'm going I'm to get in a D group. I'm going to join community. I'm going to blah, blah, blah. I'm going to get baptized. I'm going to stop doing that. Do it now. Realize the fact that there's an invitation before you from the greatest, the greatest father you could imagine who loves you and knows everything about you. And he's saying, today, today. Listen, he doesn't, he doesn't hate you. He loves you. He takes us through the fire, not to burn us, but to purify us. He walks us through the flood, not to drown us, but to cleanse us. How long are you going to keep going your own way in your own strength? You're just going to keep rolling these dice over and over. Have you turned from vain things and placed your full hope in the promise of Jesus Christ to you? Have you done that? And listen, if you're sitting here this morning and you're God's child and you know that and he's been calling you and drawing you because His will for you, according to Scripture, is your sanctification. And He's been calling you and drawing you in sanctification to participate with Him and to grow in godliness and to do whatever it is He's calling you to do. Are we so naive this morning as to believe that He's just going to spend the rest of all your days Drawing you to keep to do, to do, to do, to do this. Oh, he's going to keep working on you. And he's going to keep working in you. But now maybe you see why we paused for Jonah. God didn't stop speaking to Jonah. But God changed the way he spoke to Jonah. You see, here's the, the, this is what, what you shouldn't do right now is to fear the fish. That's a mistake. What you should do, if you're a child of God, is you should fear the very real reality that what God's calling you to do now If you don't do it, he's going to use somebody else to do it. And you're going to miss that opportunity. That's a million times worse than a fish. A million times. Have you placed all your hope in Jesus? I don't mean part of it. I don't mean some of it. I don't mean most of it. I mean, what are you hoping in? What is your hope in? You can't just put God off and then summon Him at some time in the future. God will not be summoned. 
Listen closely. God knocks on the door. You don't. You don't knock on the door. He knocks. So if he's knocking right now, with every fiber of my being, I plead with you. Answer the door. Answer it. No matter how scary it may seem to you, no matter how frightful or how many things seem unknown to you, listen, it's God on the other side of the door knocking. Seek Him while He may be found. Because the flip side of all of this is that the road of not now so oftentimes leads to the town of never. It did for Felix. It did for Drusilla. And it does for so many. So many say, not now, God, not now. Some other time, some more convenient time. 